Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In America, we put a lot of pressure on our jobs. On the one hand, we're forced to sell our labor for wages in order to survive. But it's clear that for many of us, our identities, our self-worth, and even our sense of spiritual value can get tied up in the jobs we have. This is something that Max Weber, a German thinker who today is widely regarded as one of the fathers of sociology, noticed back in 1905. His book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, tried to explain some of the social phenomena of industrialized and post-industrial labor by tracing a narrative through history, all the way back to a 16th century religious rift, the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was a Christian movement led by people like Martin Luther and, importantly for Weber, John Calvin, that resulted in a breakaway from the Catholic Church. As Weber saw it, something happened here, at this moment in history, that would sort of inflect the way we saw our relationship to God. But really, it changed our relationship to success. And the residue of that shift is still present in the modern world. So, if we understand what Weber meant by the Protestant ethic, can we understand our relationship to work today? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is George Blaustein. He's a professor of American studies at the University of Amsterdam and a founder and editor of the European Review of Books. In the early days of the pandemic, George wrote an essay for the New Republic called Searching for Consolation in Max Weber's Work Ethic. It was an attempt to use Weber's narrative about capitalism and our spirituality to try and make sense of what at the time was a brave new world for workers everywhere. I wanted to talk to Blaustein about this essay for a couple of reasons. First, I thought it'd be interesting to look back on this analysis from almost three years ago to see if things still hold up. But mostly, I wanted to learn about how we can still use Weber's ideas to understand our relationship to work, capitalism, and ultimately to our own society. George Blaustein, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be here. I'm glad we're doing this. I want to start by asking how you ended up in an American studies department in Amsterdam. Is that as fun as it sounds? I don't know how fun it sounds. (laughs) I finished a PhD in 2011. I had an American studies education and a transatlantic interest wanted vaguely to come to Europe. And then I landed in Amsterdam and have, yeah, now been teaching American studies outside the U.S. for a little over a decade. And it's a strange endeavor, I would say, but it is fun. So you're, you're teaching European students who are 
majoring in American studies. Is that right? Majoring in American studies or minoring in American studies or landing in American studies. What the hell are they into as it relates to American studies? Are you, are you there to decode America for these people? Or It's a good question. In my sense of it here is that there are a few different fascinations. There is an inherited sense still in Western Europe, an association of America with some kind of power and modernity. The modernity of mass culture or some kind of land of the future. That's one current. Another current is a kind of European sense that the empire must be studied and demystified. And one of the interesting things about teaching American studies outside the United States is that you are occasionally asked to expound on American politics as some kind of expert on the present or the freshest vocabularies of, for instance, race and ethnicity, such that American studies in Europe can sometimes become a kind of ethnic studies, which is something that I'm more than happy to teach and am delighted to teach, in fact. Well, we are here to talk about Max Weber. And I think before we swan dive into some of his ideas and why they matter today, I was hoping you could maybe tell us a little bit about who this guy was and why you found yourself drawn to him, especially in the summer of 2020. So I had been teaching the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism over the years in a course on international perspectives of the United States. Weber was, in that sense, a text in the canon along with Marx's writing about America or Tocqueville's writing about America or... Simone de Beauvoir on America. This was a paradigmatic book that was about the United States in a curious way. And so reading it and rereading it over the years with students gave me some kind of acquaintance of it. And it's a strange book in ways that we will get into. Then in 2020, two things happened that led to me writing a essay about Weber in a way that I hadn't thought to do before. One was a new translation of the two vocation lectures, Science as a Vocation, or Wissenschaft als Beruf, and Politics as a Vocation, Politik als Beruf, translation by Damien Searles. And it was the 100-year anniversary of Weber's death. He died of the Spanish flu, and so there was an occasion to think about Weber and the whole idea of a work ethic in an era of work undergoing a bizarre transformation. So that was the occasion for writing that essay. Now it feels like it's a bit far away. It's curious to read one's own work now that the pandemic is officially over as a political matter. But this guy Weber, I mean, he, you know, he's, I guess, principally a sociologist, but I mean, is, is he widely considered one of the sort of fathers of modern social science? So, weird thing about Weber, he's born in the 1860s in Germany, comes of age with the German nation-state, dies in 1920, and is now a canonical founder of modern sociology, a giant of the German school at the turn of the century. And, in fact, he never had an academic position in capital S sociology as such. He had various positions. His actual training was in law. He was well known for having a seven-year nervous breakdown that was solved in part by the writing of the Protestant ethic of the spirit of capitalism in 1904 and 1905. And then he goes on to have a kind of political life through the First World War, angling for some kind of role in politics and was angling indeed for a position in the wake of German defeat in World War I, but then died in 1920, leading to some commentary on what Weber might have gone on to do in history. Unquestionably, his best-known work is the text you mentioned, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And that book makes a connection between society in the early 20th century, which is, of course, when he was writing the thing, and, and this big historical shift that occurs in the 15th century. Now, that's quite a bridge. Mm-hmm. What was the connection Weber wanted to draw here? Like, What in the world did the Protestant Reformation have to do with 20th century capitalism? So, if you've heard of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, there is a generally held sort of cliche cemented by Weber that capitalism, whatever that is, has something to do with Protestantism, whatever that is, specifically 
Calvinism, whatever that is. <laughs> and for Weber, each of those things require some explanation. But it's useful first to say what Weber's argument was not. He was not saying that Protestantism caused capitalism. Yeah, this is a big point. That's the big point. And then the other thing that we should say, the other bubble that I wanted to burst while writing about Weber was a cliche of Northern European hardworkingness and Southern European laziness. Unfortunately, that cliche is associated to some degree with the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, but that was not Weber's subject at all. I would say the conventional or, or, or the most popular interpretation or, or reading of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism is that it's a, a kind of celebration. It's an expression of, of the triumph of the Protestant ethic, whatever that is, and, and how it was essential to, I guess, the success or the flourishing of, of the West and capitalism and all the rest of it. But your interpretation of it is that it's actually the reverse, that the book was actually a lamentation and not a celebration. What was Weber actually lamenting here? It's a good question. The people who celebrate it are indeed misreading it. And here I think I can sketch Weber's line of narrative a little better. So Weber is living in the 1890s and the early 20th century, and something now called industrial capitalism has restructured his and his society's entire world. And he's part of a group of sociologists and social theorists who want to narrate their own modernity. Weber is looking around and sees other interpretations of capitalism, other origins of capitalism, other names of things we called capitalism. The book is written in ways that we will get into as, in a way, a counterstatement or complement or counterpoint to what Marx was saying about capitalism. What's the counterpoint there? Well, instead of seeing capitalism as a product merely of material history, instead of seeing capitalism as simply a mode of production that had come into being as the byproduct of changes in what Marx would call the base, Weber was more interested in identifying a psychology of capitalism, identifying, therefore, a psychology of modernity. And so he does the thing that historians should never do, but that sociologists like him were wont to do, which was to reach back in a kind of genealogical way for the beginning, where, A, if we're saying that capitalism is not merely a material mode of production, but some kind of orientation to the world, some kind of internalized psychological state, doing a kind of broad sweep of European religious history, he arrives at the idea that there's some kind of similarity between the Calvinist type and the capitalist type, a Calvinist attitude toward work and a capitalist attitude toward work, or I should say a capitalist attitude towards uh, labor, the yeah. idea that it is somehow our duty to labor in a calling, the idea that by laboring in a calling, we achieve moral or philosophical satisfaction or any kind of salvation, that idea, the unquestioned idea that it's our jobs to be working at jobs. That was what Weber was trying to find a kind of origin for. Yeah. And he found it in Calvinism. He actually paints a kind of cartoon of Calvinism. He finds it in miserable Calvinists who are unsure of their salvation because God is, after all, inscrutable, and none of us has any real control over whether we are saved or damned. And therefore, the way we deal with that is to labor in our calling because there's nothing else we can do. Weber, for the position of a secular modernist, pursues that elective affinity between Calvinists of earlier centuries and secular capitalists of his own era. Weber places a lot of blame on Calvinism and this Calvinist doctrine of, of double predestination, <laughs> which is a, a kind of, at least from my point of view, it's really like a, a morally aberrant idea. But it's worth stating it, right? And I guess the, the basic gist of it is that God has pre-selected people for salvation or damnation. Mm -hmm. And the proof that you were among the saved <laughs> could be found in your material success. Mm -hmm. And so, in that sense, this Calvinist doctrine of pre 
destination allowed for one's religious salvation to sort of line up with the logic of capitalism. You know, the saved were the successful ones, and they're winners and they're losers. And everyone is, of course, trying to be a winner. I really want to tease out how this Calvinist idea sort of reemerges under a new guise in the era of capitalism. And there's a line of yours from your essay that maybe I can read to you because it was quite striking to me and quite good. And now I'm quoting. Calvinism was less capitalism's cause than its ironic precondition. The things people did for desperate religious reasons gave way to a secular psychology. That secular psychology was no freer than the religious one. We had been emancipated into jobs. Tell me what you're trying to say there. So it's a funny thing about Weber's book is that actual religious historians of Calvinism have to push against Weber's cartoon of Calvinism. Yeah. So for Calvin in the 16th century, he would understand himself to be casting off the kind of anti-Christian authority of the Catholic Church with all of its corruptions, bringing into life a purer measure of devotion. On one level, democratizing the sacred in the sense that now any Christian would be able to read the Bible in different languages. This is one of the uh, Lutheran things to which Weber looks. And on the Calvinist side, that every individual is enacting with God an individual drama of salvation with a God that is not necessarily via the institutions or the practices of the Catholic Church. Right. Rather, it comes down only to faith. And on one sense, this is emancipating from a set of forms. However, in Weber's account, the Calvinism that Calvin proffered as a doctorate is something that nobody can actually live up to and produces only an enormous anxiety and fear of damnation precisely because you have no control over it. In that sense, for Weber, uh, working in a calling was Calvinism's answer to the problem of itself. Instead of retreating into the peace of monastic devotion, they were stuck going out into the world and looking for signs of their own salvation, both in the world and in their own heads. The way he narrates it in 1905 in the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism is as the dismal modernity that we are all stuck in. And there's not really a way out. Yeah. We're all just kind of stuck with this. The things that the 16th and 17th century Puritans chose to do, we in the 19th century just kind of inherited and, though he doesn't use the term, internalized. So that book doesn't offer any way out. Indeed, it just says it refers to capitalism as a kind of monstrous enormity that will persist. But having that modernity so bracingly and toughly narrated to you gave a kind of intellectual solace, like, ah, at least you can name the thing. That gives you a kind of leverage. Now, he's writing this for sociologists. He's not saying that the calling is uh, salvific or not salvific. He's just saying it's the thing that we're stuck with. That's how we live now. I know he, he talks about this era as the beginning of this process of rationalization that the world was undergoing, at least since the Reformation. And I'm still not entirely sure what what he meant by that. Maybe you can say what he meant by that. Is the rationalization of the world, at least on his understanding, bound up with what he thought of as the disenchantment of the world? Was the latter a consequence of the former? Oh, yeah. They go, they, in a way, go hand in hand. Uh, Nietzsche's death of God is in the background of Weber's account. It was just he 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 saw it as the kind of given that modernity had, not through anyone's intention or design, modernity had cordoned the religious off from the scientific, and here we were. And he looks to Benjamin Franklin as a kind of pivotal figure in this history, and this is one of the funnier parts of the text. Ben Franklin emerges as the ur-capitalist, as the kind of figure who serves as a bridge between this religious sensibility to a more secular one, looking to Franklin's gospel of wealth in the mid-18th century as, as for Weber, a weirdly honest portrait of the capitalist mindset that would say, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. But why? You're not actually enjoying the wealth. It was success without hedonism. 
It justified itself as civic. It was performed for a community, but that community was now in its heart of hearts miserable and isolated and didn't have any sacred comforts. Yeah. Uh, and yet everybody everybody gets together, together and alone to be anxious about their own fate. That for Weber is the psychological orientation that he's describing. And actually, as a little side note, it is worth noting that Weber took Franklin a little too seriously. He got this portrait of Franklin from a 19th century German satirical novel called Der America Müde, The Man Who Was Tired of America. But anyway. Uh, Sounds like uh, he took everything a little too seriously. <laughs> he did. He did. He did. That's a good bridge to the Iron Cage. This is an image he invokes near the end of, of the Protestant ethic, and as you point out in your essay, that it would probably be better translated as iron suit rather than iron cage. Steel suit. Steel suit, yeah. Right, right. Steel suit. So tell me what you mean here. What is he trying to describe with this image? Why is it usually translated as iron cage, and why do you say it's better understood as steel suit? I might as well just read the damn paragraph from Weber. Can I quote from Weber? Shit, yeah, you can. Okay. Here's one of the more famous paragraphs from the Protestant ethic. This is the 1905 version. It's translated by Peter Baer and Gordon Wells. The Puritans, Weber writes, wanted to be men of the calling. We, on the other hand, must be. For when asceticism moved out of the monastic cells and into working life and began to dominate innerworldly morality, it helped to build that mighty cosmos of the modern economic order, which is bound to the technical and economic conditions of mechanical and machine production. Today, this mighty cosmos determines with overwhelming coercion the style of life not only of those directly involved in business, but of every individual who is born into this mechanism and may well continue to do so until the day the last ton of fossil fuel has been consumed. Hmm. There's a good example of Weber reaching for a kind of rhetorical grandeur, even a romantic grandeur. I'd say he, he, he hit the note there. That's a hell of a graph. It's, it is. But there's a lot packed into that. What is he, what is he trying to say there? So we have a few different metaphors. One metaphor is capitalism not as a mode of production, but as a cosmos, a mighty cosmos that determines with overwhelming coercion the style of life, not only of those directly involved in business, but of every individual who is born into this mechanism. So he's saying it's a way of life, not just an economic order. It's not just an economic order. It may have begun as an economic order. That economic order may have come through various historical developments, maybe uh, Quaker merchants are to blame for it. Maybe it is Mediterranean economies. Maybe it's Venetian merchants who installed it as a sort of material thing. But the more spiritual side of it, the more personality side of it, the geist side of it, that has infected all humanity, however connected to business we are or not. So what started as the kind of businessman's Franklinian credo of profit for profit's sake, has now just bled everywhere into society. So is this, is this the iron cage? Is this spiritual cosmos in which we're all now living? Is that the iron suit? Is that the iron cage? So then he goes on to say, and he quotes a 17th century English Puritan, Richard Baxter. He says, in Baxter's view, concern for outward possessions should sit lightly on the shoulders of saints like a thin cloak which can be thrown off at any time in other words if you are a if you're a good calvinist you should worry only about your inner salvation and not dirty yourself spiritually with material goods then weber says goes on to say this but fate decreed that the cloak the puritans kind of cloak that was removable should become a shell as hard as steel. In German, that's Stahlhartes Gehäuse. So what he's describing is a gradual thing playing out over a few centuries, whereby what starts as a Puritan saying, my big house is not related to my salvation. I dress modestly. I wear a black coat. I'm a Dutchman with only the little white ruffled collar thing in one of the Rembrandt paintings as a sign of ostentation. That was a religious lifestyle of Calvinists in the 17th century that over time became everyone's suit that they couldn't take off. And that suit was now mechanized, a shell as hard as steel. 
We now have this phrase, iron cage. That's the most famous metaphor in Weber's corpus, but it was not actually Weber's. And all Weberologists will tell you this, of course. It was a 20th century American sociologist, Talcott Parsons, whose translation of Weber of the Protestant ethic into English in 1930 changed the shell hard as steel to the iron cage. And it's the wrong metaphor. It's the wrong metaphor because it makes it sound like we are in a room rather than that our entire psychology is wearing an outfit that cannot be taken off. Why can't we take it off? Because we are born into this cosmos. In Weber's account, he says, fate decreed that the cloak should become a shell as hard as steel. So for Faber, there's not necessarily a satisfying answer of why we can't take it off. There is instead the fact that we can't take it off and therefore have to live with it. So, you know, this would be the stupid answer to the question. The one-dimensional answer would be modernity is the reason we can't take it off. In writing The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, how much was Max Weber inspired by America? That's coming up after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. It definitely didn't surprise me that he was so intrigued by or interested in America. I mean, I guess it's what we now call a prosperity gospel, but whatever he's talking about, boy, it sure does seem to have found fertile soil here and and still does flourish. And this, it's worth mentioning that the book emerged out of, it was written in two parts. One part was written before a trip to the U.S., and one part was written after and in the wake of a trip to the U.S., and the story of Weber's trip to the U.S. is itself interesting. So he comes to the U.S. in 1904, having now sufficiently recovered from his years-long neurasthenic breakdown, travels all around, then goes to the U.S. as part of a sociological entourage that was presenting something in St. Louis, and there encounters what was for a lot of German and European socialists, as well as non-socialist commentators, the site of modernity, the place of capitalism's purest expression, which Weber saw in Chicago. And he has this amazing image of like seeing a person with all of their skin torn off and seeing all the muscles working. That's what it was to go to America, to see capitalism in that way. That's colorful. It's colorful. You know, one obvious question here is why or how does this element from Protestantism get preserved, you know, inextricably upon us like a steel suit? Even as people get less and less religious, how does that get preserved even as we move into this more secular, more rational world. 
Mm-hmm. I don't have a satisfying answer to that question. I'm not sure there is one. Did he Did he attempt an answer? Well, I want to turn this question around and draw out a point about the book. Instead of trying to uh, prove or disprove Weber's thesis, which is, after all, unprovable, it's useful to think about the kind of narrative of capitalism that this is, the kind of narrative of modernity that it is. It places the blame for modern capitalism so to speak, within us and within our intellectual and spiritual lineages, as opposed to blaming, for example, Jewish merchants earlier, or in uh, usury, or in other sorts of things. Uh, Weber dismisses that. Other stories of the origin of capitalism might locate it in material things or in a particular class, the bourgeoisie as a specific carrier of the thing called capitalism. Faber says, no, in fact, the germ of capitalism is in the thing that we thought was not capitalism. The germ of capitalism is in this thing that we thought was sacred. It is the sacred that has, by its own set of dialectical twists, given way to us. That is itself a quite powerful move. Yeah, and that's the sense in which he sort of flipping marks a little bit yes on on his head right you know there is a lot of debate about this right whether weber's account of capitalism is incompatible or at odds with marx's and it seems to be marx's materialist account has economic development as the causal engine driving culture and really everything else it starts with the economic structures in place and everything flows out of that and weber seems to be doing precisely the opposite and reversing that story what they share what both Marx and Weber share is a tendency to narrate modernity in these Gothic metaphors. And there's also a kind of perverse wonder that they bring to the problem of narrating their own modern economic world, where, you know, Marx's account will, Communist Manifesto will begin from the premise that all history is the history of class conflict. Weber says, ah, he's not interested in social structures or class structure. There's this Geist, and that requires another way of narrating it. So on one hand, he points the accusatory finger inward in the fullest sense, inward both as the spirit of capitalism is within you, reader, and within everyone in this room, and it is within the deepest spiritual, religious, established church currents of Europe— in a way, he's taunting Protestantism for having betrayed itself and secularized itself or for having given way to the modernity in which he is living. Uh, the demon is calling, so to speak, from inside of the house, the house of our own theology, the house of our own history, the house of our own sensibility. So what does he think salvation means for the typical 20th century capitalist citizen? <laughs> What is our salvation now? We, st- we still have that same sort of religious drive, but is it now sublimated? Is, is our God now money and status and worldly success? Is that now the measure of our worth as human beings? For Weber, instead of salvation, which is no longer available to us as a religious satisfaction, instead of salvation, at least in this book, there's a kind of solace being able to look that bracing demystification of modern life in the face carried its own kind of power. So in that sense, there is an intellectual salvation, or at least an intellectual surrogate for salvation, that to recognize that and be able to handle it, so to speak, it allows one to reconcile oneself to the modernity that has been narrated to you. It doesn't lead a reader to endeavor to fundamentally change that system or revolutionize that system because such a thing is impossible. But paradoxically, I do think that fatalistic-seeming portrait of a disenchanted modernity is a ground from which satisfying modes of life can be found. You know, it is possible to take pleasure in the world. It's possible to then say, all right, I'm stuck working in a calling, but there are ways to make that calling meaningful. There are ways to, and there are callings that are meaningful. You know, I I think I want to bring this back to the question of work and its meaning for Weber and for us today. And something you point out in your piece is that for Weber, there are two senses in which we could regard work as, you know, on the one hand, a calling. Our job is to have a job. That's the bad Calvinist-y way. But then also we could regard work as a vocation, 
which is to say that it's good and, and meaningful. Is that a contradiction in Weber's thought, or is there a way to explain how both of these notions could coexist for him, that work could be both of these things? That paradox is the one that he embraced. It was our predicament as modern human beings to live through that contradiction. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer. No, I mean, it's not, actually, but it, that may be because there isn't one. There isn't one. There isn't one. But what is the difference between work as a calling and work as a vocation? Well, for Weber, they're the same thing in the sense that he uses the German word beruf, which can mean both kind of your occupation and literally being called by the divine. So the in German, they are the same word, or the, in German, the word has this robust ambiguity that, in a sense, proved Weber's point. And in English, it works as well. The fact that we might say, I feel called to be a scholar of American studies in Europe, or the fact that we would justify ourselves to ourselves in that language proves the point that we have inherited and internalized the secular relic of a once sacred way of thinking about our fate and our freedom. And yeah, there's, there's very little satisfaction in it. I, I fear these are, it's all unsatisfying answers. Yeah, you know, I, I just, um, it's difficult in part because the history he's telling here, it's so abstract and there's so much theory baked into it and it's hard to flesh it out. But there's almost, I mean, we, we did an episode on, on Nietzsche not too long ago about how we're sort of living in the shadow of, of God. And I just see echoes of that in all of this. We don't think we're believing in God anymore, but we're still very much religious. It's just the object of our religious devotion is constantly shifting, and our work becomes the center of our lives, spiritually and otherwise. And that seems to me to be a recipe for a deep, deep unfulfillment, <laughs> and also just a kind of shallow culture. And I don't know if that's me projecting my own feelings onto Weber, or if that's part of his lamentation. It's, mm, I think he ultimately, there. I mean, there is meaning, even if there's no surety of a traditionally religious salvation. One can say that stripped of that certainty, all of our lives become immensely meaningful. One could say that to labor in a calling does provide a kind of meaning. That calling can then, like we do it, we do have a kind of identity in the world through that calling. I don't know, or it's a kind of counsel against despair. But of course, it's narrow. Yeah, I mean, I just think for, for so many of us, particularly now in a world where a lot of people aren't connected to real communities. You know, all we have is our work. And if we're lucky, if we're extremely lucky, that work is rewarding. Yeah. But for many, it's not. It's just brute necessity. There's no meaning. It's absurd to call a great deal of that a calling in any sense. It's not. It is just survival. It's maybe too easy to see it as a portrait of degraded human life, or it's tempting to conflate Weber's portrait of the capitalist spirit with, with the kind of plea of an underclass, but he's not making it that way. He's speaking in a way to, I hate to use the term, a kind of privileged alienation. That's why actually one of, one of Weber's great, perhaps ironic heirs in the present uh, is the, the late great David Graeber, whose bullshit jobs has a real Weberian signature on some level. Mm -hmm. Reading Graeber doesn't make me feel that my life has no meaning. Reading Graeber makes me feel like the world is full of possibility even when disenchanted. So one of the funny ironies about the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, he writes it as a kind of bracing demystification of modern complacency. Mm. And there's the thrill, is the kind of romantic thrill of looking into the abyss. But a lot of his vocabularies are still good tools for thinking for quite different radical ends. We've got to take one last short break. But when we come back, I'll ask George about his own work. Does he see teaching as a calling? And did the experience of the pandemic change that? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. 
So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. something personal and I feel okay asking it because you write about this in your in your piece and that is about your own your own vocation your own calling <laughs> your own job I mean the, mm-hmm. this big essay you wrote on Weber as I mentioned earlier you you wrote this really at the beginning really in the in the throes of the pandemic living our lives virtually I know that changed the experience of teaching it changed the experience of, of working for for millions and millions of us how could it not it sounded like it forced some deep questions about your own <laughs> vocation or calling. I imagine that was part of the impetus for diving into some of this in the first place, right? Did that experience change how you think about what you do? Do you think of what you do as a vocation or a calling or, or what? I suppose, like any good Midwestern Jew Catholic with a Protestant streak, which apparently is what I am, <laughs> or, uh, I could never answer such a question with any certainty. And of course, there's doubt. But it is true that reading Weber in the first year of the pandemic was instructive because it at least let one narrate oneself to oneself. Why the hell am I not canceling every single class? Why do, why are we, why, why, why have the gears of the institution in which I work continued to turn and even turn more and more and pride itself on still turning on saying we have not canceled a single class it's a kind of cartoon of persisting in our calling by showing up to a zoom classroom even though we could tell we all knew that the technologies we were using to persist in our so-called calling was taking a real number on our souls you know this kind of zoom fatigue was a new phenomenon and as i wrote in the essay i described weber's calvinists as a community of people who were together obsessing about their own damnation and spiritual isolation. So the modernity of Weber's Calvinists was that they were together in being spiritually alone and unsure. There was something that echoed to me the experience of being in a Zoom classroom and not really knowing how to navigate and everybody wanting a break. It's no surprise that the burnouts reigned. At the same time, you're right. There did persist, even in that Zoom era, even in the precarious academia in which we work, there were these moments where the humanities, the academic humanities, had deep meaning. And those students that I worked with, whose theses I advised in that year, even over Zoom calls, those were some of the deepest intellectual bonds that I had at the time. And it was enriching, curiously. Yeah. Well, I mean, you also wrote that and now I'm quoting you, working from home traps us ever more firmly in the ideology or mystique of a calling. Mm-hmm. After what I assume was several more months or even years of working from home in the time since you wrote those words, which was the summer of 2020, yeah. do, do you still feel that way? Do you still agree with that assessment of remote work? I'm not sure. Now we're in a, a luxury of, in a way, returning to the office. And it would be interesting to revisit my own essay in a moment of the curious politics of whether people should be compelled to return to the office or not. I have no answer to this question. I would be happy never having another class on Zoom as for the rest of my life, and I would and I loved being physically back in the classroom. So I I'm not entirely sure the pandemic lockdowns in home office was not a change of kind. It was a change of degree. This is what Weber would say. It was not that some new paradigm had been entered. It was instead that a pre-existing logic of work and calling had been 
jacked up in some dramatic way. Yeah. Hopefully in a sense that ah, something might break and you can realize what the hell are we doing? We shouldn't be living this way. And maybe something opens, but. Well, there was that moment, right? During the pandemic where, where people were talking about the great resignation, that one of the many things that had happened during the pandemic was it occasioned this shift in our relationship to work. I'm not sure what that meant at the time. I'm not sure what it means now. I, I don't see any great shift. Me neither. Maybe I'm missing it. But do you think there was a shift in our attitude toward work during the pandemic? I don't know if there's a shift. I do think, at least in a Viberian posture, the modernity one imagines one is escaping is really just a blob that sucks you back in. So there would be nothing more annoyingly Viberian work ethic performing than broadcasting the sourdough bread you so proudly made to all your friends, thus showing them that that you were among the lucky people who had found meaning in their life. So I think for Weber, it extends beyond work into recreation. That's how far the Weberian argument would spread. Even our, even our leisure is infected with the spirit or the spirit structures our leisure. I think that's too far. I think that's then we're getting into a kind of silliness. I mean, for Weber, there's not a clear, when he's writing this, there's not a clear political implication about what we should be doing with or against our jobs. He would be a kind of ironic ancestor to a book with the title, Work Won't Love You Back. Yeah, I mean, I'd look, or, look, if there's a God-shaped hole in your life, don't try to fill it with work. <laughs> yeah, but although, what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do? During the pandemic, I, I, uh, I taught myself how to tune a piano. I have an old piano in my little apartment, and I bought online a piano tuning wrench. And I play the piano. I, uh, I can hold my own, depending on the musical setting. And my piano was out of tune, so I tuned the piano. It took about 12 hours. It was an insane activity. I'm sure my neighbors thought I was a crazy person, because tuning a piano is a bizarre craft. And that's a form of work that felt very meaningful at the time. So there would be there would be an example of turning away from the Zoom work, but taking up what was another kind of work. What would a satisfying answer to that question look like? You know, I wouldn't want a kind of malaise-born withdrawal from work into resigned recreation. I would be more interested in the pandemic hastening certain contradictions that lead to the surprising wave of unionization. That would be an example of the historical current through which we are living. Hell, look, we can forget about Weber for just a second. Yeah. Did your relationship to your work change? You know, it is when something that catastrophic happens, it can kind of shake you out of your stupor a little bit and, and force certain questions upon you. I mean, did, did your work for you feel less significant once you realize how quickly the, the floor can drop out? Or did it give you some kind of newfound appreciation for it? Maybe one way of describing it is that the crisis made you so much more aware of the media of your work. You know, there's nothing more odious than having to like edit an audio PowerPoint of a lecture that you were giving. That was the sort of, that was the part that felt unimaginable for Weber, the technological aspect of it. We're, you know, we're, we're having this conversation against the backdrop of a lot of anxieties and panic and hysteria and, and techno utopianism about AI and, and how that may change the world and, and us and certainly the labor market. I don't know, maybe there's a world in which someone like Weber would welcome the development of this kind of potentially world-changing technology? I mean, is it at least possible, though I don't think likely, that something like AI could reduce the pseudo-spiritual significance of work in our lives? And in that sense, maybe disabuse us of this Calvinist notion of, of work as our salvation? Or do you think maybe he would just lament this as an escalation of the same, or an acceleration of the same processes he was critiquing 100 plus years ago? Probably the latter. He would be suspicious of all utopians in that sense, or he would find them he'd find them false. Protestant ethic at the spirit of capitalism, you know, was targeted at a particular kind of academic argument. It did register among the kind of liberal middle classes throughout the 20th century. It entered our vocabulary in an interesting way, transformed from however the hell Weber meant it. He did not become any kind of guru for how to be happy. That does not exist with Weber. 
Well, the only reason to have a conversation about a guy whose significant works were published over a century ago is because they must speak in some significant way to the moment. Do you think he's relevant? I mean, presumably you think he's still a relevant thinker. What do you think makes him relevant to the world in 2023? I find myself, anytime I deal with a book like this, wanting to argue for the relevance and irrelevance of it. Why the Protestant ethic is powerful requires us to place it in 1905. We have to locate it in history to restore some of the wonder of the thesis uh, and in a way resist the temptation to find that simple relevance for the present. I want to talk about the vocation lectures. Yeah, sure. Go for it. What were they, first of all? In 1917 and 1918, towards the end of his life, Weber was invited by students in Munich to give two lectures. One was called Wissenschaft als Beruf. It's translated as science as a vocation, but it might be better translated as academia as a vocation, in which he asks, what is scholarship and what is scholarship for and what kind of calling is scholarship? And he says, okay, we all admit that Academia is a fallen institution, and yet our scholarship matters. And we all admit the foundation of our academic work is no longer some kind of divine certainty. We're not discovering the workings of the Lord in the dissection of a frog. But nevertheless, that is a noble calling. The other vocation lecture is called Politics as a Vocation. And in this case, Germany had lost the war. This was unimaginable to him a year prior Bavaria is in the midst of a socialist revolution. He's invited by radical students to talk about the vocation of politics. And there he gives this contrarian sociological anatomy of what politics is. That's by far the most influential politically of Weber's writing, still often cited. And he offers a definition of the state. He offers kind of narrative of politics in general. But the subtext is, for the most part, to kind of deflate the what he saw as naive revolutionary impetus playing out before him, and to arrive at a sermon of charismatic leadership, finding that the only political salvation will come not through a revolution that was doomed to fail, but through responsible statesmen. And these are the two avenues of meaning. One avenue of meaning is Wissenschaft. The other avenue of meaning is politics broadly considered. Those were, so to speak, the good kind of callings. And from that perch, his story of capitalism ended with kind of heroic reconciliation to the modernity that you have been born into but didn't choose. Maybe there's meaning to be found in ideas or in politics. This is a lot of fun, George. Thank you so much for walking us through the thicket that is the life and thought of Max Weber. George is the editor of the European Review of Books. You can go check that out online. And in print. And in print. And you should do that. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Good to be here. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. We really read that stuff. Keep it coming. If you appreciated this episode, quit your job and share the link with your friends on all the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.